Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Get your advanced PhD in WOW from Floor and Decor. If you're a pro, you're already an expert in tile, wood, and stone. And with Floor and Decor's job site delivery, their free design services, and pro rewards that actually reward you, your business is set to grow from one client to the next. Floor and Decor isn't just a couple of aisles, it's an entire store designed to help your business boom. It's Floor and Decor. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. As the dying approach their death, up to 88% of them experience certain vivid, moving dreams. Though dreams isn't even the best word for these experiences, as they can happen to people when they're both awake and asleep, and are described by them as being more real than real. My guest today has studied these visions and dreams for many years, and thinks they have important insights into the nature of life and death. His name is Dr. Christopher Kerr, and he's a hospice physician, an end-of-life researcher, as well as the author of Death is But a Dream, Finding Hope and Meaning at Life's End. We begin our conversation with Dr. Kerr's efforts to study end-of-life experiences on an objective scientific basis and how his research into these visions and dreams doesn't attempt to find their spiritual or paranormal origin, but simply seeks to catalog the phenomenon from a clinical perspective. We then discuss how long before death people begin having these dreams, the content of the dreams, and who shows up in them. Dr. Kerr describes how pre-death visions and dreams are typically positive and comforting, and how even the rare, disturbing variety can end up being transformative. And he shares what the dreams do not only for the dying, but for their caregivers as well. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awim.is slash death dreams. All right, Chris Kerr, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So you are a, a hospice doctor and you've published a book, Death is But a Dream, Finding Hope and Meaning at Life's End. Tell us, how did you get into becoming a, a hospice doctor? Well, I, I, I wish I could tell you it was a noble aspiration, but the truth is I, I just needed to pay some bills. I was a cardiology fellow, pretty impoverished with kids and was looking for moonlighting opportunities. And I saw it now in the newspaper for a hospice doctor. And I actually, ironically, I had petitioned to get out of that rotation as a resident. And so I did it and, you know, I wasn't here long and, and realized this was the most meaningful work I had ever done and never looked back 22 years later. Okay. So when you were a young resident working at Hospice Buffalo to, to pay the bills, you had an experience with a dying patient and a nurse that led you down this path that you spent the past two decades exploring the phenomenon of pre-death visions and dreams. Can you tell us about that experience? Sure. I, you know, it was a bit of a setup because I'd gone through training where we're really not taught to address uh, the dying patient in the fullest sense and certainly don't have a, any real appreciation for their experience. So I find myself here, I'm a fish out of water, there's no technology, and I'm kind of forced to be present at the bedside. And I walked into the nurse's station this is a young guy who was dying of complications of HIV, and he was in his 40s, and I thought he could have more time if we did things to him, you know, IVs, antibiotics. And the nurse didn't even look up, and 
she said, oh, no, he's dying. And, and, you know, I said, well, how'd you know? And he said, well, because he's seen his dead mother. And, you know, within our culture, and particularly those who are closer to the bedside, like nurses, this is a part, an accepted part of their clinical interactions. When they see this, which is common, they've actually, you know, learned to value it and that it had prognostic significance. So she was seeing something basically that I wasn't which was I'm focused on the objective aspect of the patient and she's actually going deeper and trying to appreciate what he's actually experiencing. So nurses have known about this phenomenon of people having visions and dreams of typically it's, we'll talk about this typically of dead relatives before they die. Has this been a known phenomenon with doctors and in medicine in the scientific field? You know, I, less so because as soon as you stray again from the objectivity of medicine, and as soon as you step further away from intervention, measurable things, things that can be imaged, so more abstract, as soon as you go from the brain to the mind, I think medicine, particularly in a modern, in our, in our more Western world, it gets harder to appreciate. We've disassociated ourselves and really look at dying as organ failure rather than a closing of a life or a human experiences. And I think nurses, pastoral care, et cetera, they're faced because they're present to deal with the patient in totality. So this becomes undeniable to them. Whereas the doctor comes by as a spot welder and is in a position not to necessarily have to have regard for it. Well, and if, if the doctor did, you know, recognize, okay, this person's having a, he's seen his dead grandmother, how would they explain it? Would it be that, well, that scientific that- way? Yeah, that's actually part of the problem. And again, it goes back to the distinction between, you know, mind, soul, spirit versus organic basis, such as brain function. So what they do is they try to put it within a medical framework. So right away, it goes to questions of brain function. It goes questions of delirium or confusional states. In other words, it's doctors today, the more we know, the more they seek to claim definition around things. So they have to explain it, which is where we get stuck medically. If we can't treat to cure, we're stuck. And if we can't diagnose, explain in a scientific rubric, then we're kind of lost. And this is something you just have to stand back from and just have some degree of reverence for without necessarily finding its etiology or trying to pathologize it, right? I mean, is, so when they see this, is this a manifestation of a dying, broken brain function. Yeah. You highlight a lot of times they think, well, that's just, he's losing oxygen to his brain. That's why what's going on. But I think you, you found, you did research on this. Like, no, oftentimes when people are having these visions, they're not, they're, they're fine. Yeah. That was just, this is how this basically happened. I tried to teach this to medical students and residents. And the response I always got was from the vantage point that they're sitting at is, you know, there's no evidence for this. And, and, and that was true in a medical framework. And it was easy to dismiss into this black box of what we call dementia or confusion. So what we did, our, our, you know, our, our findings aren't new. They were just put in the right context is we did things like ruled out confusion. So you had to be screened because the study was university approved. You had to actually be screened to make sure you were cognitively intact. 
And we also went upstream in illness, and this is really important. So we're not talking about the minutes and hours before death. The brain is deoxygenated and confusion is more common than not. We're talking about the days and months before death. So a lot of these people are living independently, highly functional. And then what we did, of course, is we filmed them because there was always going to be the doubter. And it was we, we tend to project our belief on what we think a dying person is, frail, feeble, inarticulate, perhaps confused. And so what we did is we let the patients speak for themselves. And that turned out to be a very powerful additive to the research findings. So, you know, if I'm being challenged in, in a lecture setting on this, you know, you just press play and you have to see it for yourself. Well, why did you think it was important to study this phenomenon scientifically? You know, I think because, and, and this actually turned out, has turned out to be true. I mean, this got momentum that's gone around the world and hasn't stopped. And it's not that our work is so novel or unique in its findings, but it had never been put in a proper clinical context, in a caregiver context. So why it matters is this. Originally, I was trying to influence the medical community, and I, I soon found out I'm kind of holding the wrong end of the stick. The people for whom this resonates the most are actually patients in the dying process, and probably more importantly is their caregiver. So if you look at my TED Talk, for example, what's most interesting isn't the TED Talk, it's, it's the you know, six, 7,000 responses where people are sharing their experiences. So in other words, if you're a caregiver confronted with this, this may not have explanation for you. You're not sure how to interpret. So normalizing it, you know, one of our roles is to take away the obstacles between the loved one and the bedside. So translating this, um, giving it validity, and that's what's propelled this work forward and around the world really is that it matters to the people who are who are still connected to others who who may be nearing the end of their life and it absolutely goes into bereavement in other words in the end of all this i think we sh- where i end up is basically less reliant on the medical community to catch up and, and to help connect family to patient and to patient to this experience but it's more an empowerment you know people our culture's changing. We don't want the doctor's death. We don't want a sterilized dying process. We want to say, we want the voice to be heard. So this is a form of empowerment as well, I think. And how do you scientifically research a subjective experience like dreams and visions? Like you said, there's no objective, there's nothing, a chart you could look at or a graph saying, yeah, this person's having a vision right now. If someone says, I see my, my dead father in the corner there, you know, you look and you don't see anything. So how do you study a subjective experience like that? Well, you know, I, again, it's really important to point out that we're not trying to find the basis of this. We're just trying, all we're trying to do is translate these experiences and document them with some scientific rigor. So again, you rule out confusion. A very important thing that we did was we talked to these patients every day up until death, because dying is a process. And we wanted to see the kind of the changes that happened as patients near death. We were very good at coming up with questionnaires, for example, that were standardized. So we scaled things. So how real is this to you? Zero to 10. We looked at the content. We asked whether it was comforting, distressing, or both. And again, we graded that. So we were trying to at least do some comparisons and to put put some structure behind our findings. And then we had more open-ended questions where we asked people to go into more of a narrative. And we analyzed that, actually. 
And then there was filming. And then we looked at, we did interesting things. We put known validated instruments like on the topic of post-traumatic growth and we applied it to these people. So could it be true that even though there's physical lessening and decline, could you psychologically, spiritually be actually growing and adapting and gaining insight and understanding during the dying process? So dying is a paradox. And so those are some of the ways we approach this. And just to be clear, you're not making any claims about, you know, the source of these dreams, like they're supernatural, kind of like the embraced by the light type stuff, right? Yeah. So, so if, if, there's, if there's one ground we wanted to be solid on, it was that. The risk of going into this research is that it's this blank canvas and you can kind of paint your, your own biases and perspectives. And we were really, really clear. We're looking at the pre-death process without trying to extrapolate into the afterlife, the religious, the paranormal, anything like that at all. We're simply trying to record and translate their experiences without assigning it either cause or meaning. Okay, so based on your research, kind of big picture, what do these pre-death dreams and visions have in common? Like when do they typically start and kind of what do you see most frequently with their content? Sure. You know, we generally see them appear around the two to three week mark prior to death, although we've gone months upstream and we do see them there as well. And generally, the path is an increase in frequency of these events as one approaches death. And then during that time, as you get closer, the content also shifts. So the closer you get to death, the more likely it is that you see people who you've loved and lost. And what's really fascinating is when we measured comfort levels to content. So, you know, does this content give you a high level, low level of content? We found was that the most comforting dreams were the dreams um, where people were reunited with those they loved. So there's this built-in process that as you get closer to death, the fear of actually dying lessens and, and you're ever more comforted by your inner experiences, which includes reconnecting. Some really interesting thing, themes come out, though. You, know, you, you, you tend to edit and, and remove the people who either harmed or conditioned their love for you. So you may see one parent and not another. The, the whole idea of time and distance seems to go away. So you could have lost a parent when you were five and you're 95, but it's her voice you hear. So it's, it's like you're being put back together. To, to the most fundamental relationships that you've had. And, and they tend to focus on love and sometimes forgiveness. If you have wounds that, from having lived that need to address, often those appear in these processes as well. And just to be clear, this happens for people who know that they're dying. Like you don't have this experience if you die in a car accident, you know, something like that. You, you know, I get that question a lot. And so about 10% of deaths are acute, right? But, but it, yeah, it's a hard thing to study, obviously, but you've got to wonder sometimes, you know, you, you, the expression, my life flashed before my eyes, you know, and this week there was a, a case that was widely reported in, in the media around the world, actually, of somebody who they were doing a brain study on for seizures and he happened to die in the study. And before death, and others have reported this, he had this, you know, massive dumping of the certain type of wave, which is focused on memory and recall. And that was just prior to death. So, yeah, I, there's no way to know, but it is interesting um, what the dying tell us, even those who are, you know, very acute 
and sudden deaths, but it's hard to tell. And also the way you describe these dreams and visions, it's for some people, they have visions while they're awake, correct? And then some people, they just have dreams, very vivid dreams. Yeah, we're really stuck there. And I, I, this is where I'm really, quite frankly, don't know what to do with this. So the, the thing of it is, is that we call them dreams because that's the only nomenclature we have. The truth is, the things we hear the most from our patients is that you don't understand, I don't normally dream, or this was virtual for me. It was a happening. I'm not recalling it. It occurred. And when we ask for how real it is, they score it 10 out of 10. And it's not like we walk in and see people who are seeing things that we don't see. You know, dying is at its core. It is progressive sleep. You're in and out of sleep states. And, you know, this may be a different form of sleeping and dreaming where it kind of blurs into wakefulness. It's really hard to decipher that. Like lucid, like like lucid dreaming. Yeah, yeah, lucid dreaming. No, yeah, yeah, that makes that's a good description. So I think to give people an idea of what these visions and dreams are like, I think it would be helpful to describe some for us. And this is what you do in your book, "Death Is But a Dream." One that I found really powerful was the pre-death vision of your patient Mary. Tell us about her. Oh sure, yeah, Mary was wonderful. And actually, I'm still in touch with members of her family 20 years later, or whatever it's been. So Mary was a magnificent woman, an artist, and and it, it, very communicative about what she was experiencing at the end of her life. So she was making references to people and things, and she had four children who were always at the bedside, and they understood the references. And then out of nowhere, she starts cradling a baby that they couldn't see, obviously cooing and kissing the baby and stroking the baby's, the infant's head. And she kept referring to him as Danny and nobody knew the reference. And then a day or two later, her sister flew in from another state and the children say, you know, mom's dreaming of Danny. And then the kind of mystery was solved. Danny was her first child and who had been lost shortly after birth, but had passed shortly after birth. And that, you know, it was a sort of wound that was so so painful that, that she wouldn't talk about it in life. And we see this a lot, you know, these, these kind of spiritual or, or psychological wounds and damages that may not have been may not have been addressed in life actually get addressed in the dying process. And we see it with veterans who have had PTSD and survivor's guilt. You know, those are wounds that often get healed. We've, we've got a lot of cases, but an awful lot of mothers and fathers who have lost children seem to be reunited again, back to this idea that they're kind of put together or made whole. Yeah, it, it's, it's really pretty remarkable. Yeah, you, you've, you've treated several veterans over the years. And you had one, like a World War II vet who, before he died, he started seeing dead comrades of his in his visions. Yeah, he was remarkable because he, um, that was another family who came in and actually contributed to the book. He was from Texas and went to war at, I think he was 17. And he was on the USS Texas and the Normandy. And he never spoke of what had happened. He wouldn't go to veteran events. He was so traumatized. And his wife obviously was able to validate that he had suffered horribly with nightmares and restless sleep and cried in his sleep. And he came in because he couldn't sleep because these visions now, these nightmares were getting more intense and disruptive and really not allowing him to rest. 
and you know, in his dreams, initially he's seeing body parts and hearing screaming. And then I come in one day and he had slept beautifully and he had two dreams. One that was extremely comforting, which was he got to relieve what he said was the best day of his life when he got his discharge papers. And the other one was a neutral dream. And what had happened was he was on the beach of Normandy and he's approached by a soldier and who tells him, you know, we're coming for you now. And somehow in that interaction, he, he was reached in a way he couldn't reach in life, which was that he was relieved of that burden. And the nightmares end, he rested peacefully and he died in sleep. But it was remarkable to think of how many decades he had struggled with this. And those parts of ourselves are residual, they're there, and they come to surface at the end, which is really makes sense. Dying changes your perspective and your perceptions, your vantage point. You're not going to think about, you know, taxes or whether I got to get my car oil changed. You're going to, you're going to ultimately be distilled down to the most important elements of having lived. And for, you know, these processes don't deny the hard parts of living. I mean, this isn't about flowers and rainbows. It's about you. And for a guy whose life was so defined early and then haunted by war, it just makes sense that this is what came to him at the end. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up. And if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. And now back to the show. And so you mentioned some with some people, these dreams, like time kind of stops existing like they they're it's very fluid they'll, they'll go backwards and forward in time i think you talked about one example you had a patient where he started seeing a dead uncle that had died you know a long time ago and then the guy himself started thinking like man i'm back in 1922 i'm 10 years old again yeah is, is that a pretty common thing to happen yeah it's really weird because they'll they'll come in and out and they've got a foot in both worlds right for parts of this and they're very un most people are very unfiltered or disinhibited in describing it. And it's a sort of experience that's interesting. They don't come out asking questions, right? The time for therapy is over. These are their actual lived experiences. So they'll describe them that way. And, you know, in that case, the guy comes out of and he's going, wow, it's like, you know, I'm in 1927. How'd they do that? So there's some bewilderment. But what always intrigues me is if that happened to you or I tonight, you know, we'd be, <laughs> we'd be pretty rattled. That's not what happens. There's a knowing that comes with this. And again, it goes back to this idea that they, it's felt like it occurred. 
but they're not haunted and they don't wake up looking for metaphors or analytics. I've never had a patient say, hey, doc, what do you think this means? They just come out of it as though it was an actual experience. So a lot of your patients that are dying, they see dead family members, but some patients don't see family members. Any patients that fit that bill that come to mind? Yeah, an awful lot of people dream of themes of travel, which are pretty clear to understand there's transition or somebody's waiting for them. Usually that feels in their description like that it's a guide or they're comforted or they're not alone. This idea they're not alone is really important. See that a lot with children. Pets are extremely common. I don't know, it's, it's, it's almost 40%. And they often be the pets from childhood. And if you think about it, whether human or pet, in terms of objects of our love that's unconditional and who we feel that unconditioned love back, Pets are indistinguishable from some of our best human relationships. So you'll hear a lot. And it's funny because they may not recall the details of the pet, you know, before they start the dying process, but as they get deeper, their, their, their recollection, and it goes to the full, all senses, you know, it's like, I can smell my mother's perfume, that kind of thing. And the same is true with the animals. There's this idea of reuniting with something that was really formative and impactful to them. So a lot of, oftentimes these visions are very positive, right? They, they people have them and they, they feel a sense of integration. They're, it gives them comfort, but you've had patients who have uh, negative experiences with these visions and dreams. Any examples come to mind there? Yeah. You know, about 12 to 15% of people have pretty traumatic, if not discomforting kind of experiences. And, and, and what, you know, probably the best example, and his name was Dwayne. And he was a super jovial guy, despite the fact he was in his 40s and he had spent most of his life in prison. He had had neck cancer, so he'd open wounds on his neck. And he's talking to us and we're asking about these dreams. And first he starts joking, you know, they're all sexual. Then all of a sudden he starts to shake and cry. And this is all on film. And he reveals that what he's experiencing is the people who he's harmed in his life. And he had seriously harmed some people, mostly in in self-defense. He says, we're stabbing him where his uh, open wounds were. And again, you know, not denying death, these events, and they're, they're, they're not obscuring the actual life that the person led. But what happened was, and this is so true of these negative, more negative, discomforting ones, is they're often the most transformational. And he wakes up and he asks to speak to a daughter. And we got a hold of her, brought her in, and for the first time, he came to some kind of reckoning, and he apologized for who he was and said that he loved her very, very much. And this happened in the hallway, and they wouldn't let go of one another. And then after that, he slept. Again, you know, soothed, healed, put back together in some way. And that's what I think is so interesting is these, these negative ones actually are, and don't end up feeling that way, at least to me. Forgiveness is real. Accounting for things is real. Being released from obligations is real. And uh, so, so although they're, they're negative, they end up being very meaningful. You have a chapter on children, which is you know, always the saddest thing to happen when a, when a child dies. And for a child, they might not know anyone who died, right? The grandparents might still be alive. So when you have children going through this process, what do they dream or have visions of? Children do this remarkably well. 
and I, I'm actually an adult doctor by training. So I, I'm have this kind of discomfort and recoil around ill children, but was, it's a long story, but I was kind of forced to participate over the years. And I, now I'm very involved with overseeing children's care. And, you know, a couple of things that are, I think are fascinating. One is that, you know, the, these experiences are so self-informing, you know, the idea that we're going to either deny somebody the reality of their own dying processes, you know, the joke is on us because these experiences, even in very demented patients often become informing. And that's true with children, children figure this out. And in very interesting ways. So yeah, they often won't know an adult who has died, but inevitably they know a pet, an animal that has, it may not be theirs, it could be their neighbors, their grandparents, and they'll come back to them. And the meaning tends to be the same. And again, these children, several of them are on film. And interestingly on the film, they, two of them say the same thing, which is basically the presence of this dog that I lost or my grandmother's parrot means that I'm not alone. And that I'm loved. And they typically see them in health. And then they'll do very interesting things because, you know, they don't have a concept of finality of mortality at all. And they don't know what it's like to be without the person or situation they're dependent on or within. So in the film, you know, one young lady dreams that she's in a castle. And, and so she imagine, you know, she's actually surrounded all the way around 360 with, with insecured and there's warm light coming in. And when we asked what it meant, she goes, you know, it's a safe place. The other young lady was, was, she was 13 raised by a single mom. She didn't know life separate from her dependency on her mother. But what she did is she had a dream where her mother's best friend who had died shows up and she's in her mother's room you know, readjusting the curtains, the light in her mother's room. So this fear of being, again, without her mother was replaced by uh, a, a maternal figure. And, you know, I, again, what kills me is these, these kids know intuitively what this means. They're not interested in the analytic piece of it. They, they're more interested in how they were made feel and what they came to understand. And uh, again, the, the, the idea is that they're leaving something, and, but that they're going to be okay, that they're not alone, they're secure, and that they're loved. So looking at all these experiences and researching this, again, you can't make a hypothesis about the source of them, right? Like, are they coming from the beyond, or is it just in the psyche? But do you have, like, have you theorized, like, why, why is it that so many people go through this process before they die where they start having visions of loved ones and, and dead dogs and things like that. What do you think, what do you think is the purpose of it? You know, I'm, I'm probably a good messenger on this because I don't necessarily have a religious philosophy and, and the more spiritual paranormal stuff actually kind of, you know, intuitively kind of creep me out. So I, I, I don't, it's not validating a view I have. I think where I end up is, is one is just to have immense reverence for it. And I think the other, the, the big take home for me is that dying is more than we see and that there's a hopeful, more positive story. And the overarching theme is really love and that we remain connected to those who we've loved and lost so that there's this kind of continuity between and across lives. 
And, you know, it sounds cliche, but that they're never gone from us. We end up kind of where we began. And, you know, I, I don't know whether that argues for a continued consciousness because the people who are died seem to have access to the people who are still living. I, I don't know. And, and to be honest with you, I don't care. I've just learned to respect it and be in awe of it. And, um, and you know, maybe it's not for us to know. And I think that's maybe where we end up. Okay, so people have these visions of family members before they die, possibly to, you know, sort of it's an integration. It's just kind of the transition from life to death, find comfort. But what about, you said early on our, our conversation that you, you think these dreams help people, the caretakers of the dying. What effect have you seen these pre-death visions have on those who are taking care of uh, dying family members? Oh, it's, it's immense. It's powerful. You know, this makes sense. You know, how we see somebody leave us absolutely influences how we grieve, how we process, how we go from loss to remembrance. You know, is death horrific and a lessening and an emptying of finality versus something that's actually life-affirming? So imagine, and I've seen this so many times, you've got two life partners together been together 60 years and they lost a child and, and, you know, one spouse is looking at his partner and she's holding the child that's lost. That completely recontextualized dying from horror, pain, loss, emptiness to actual love, connectiveness, and again, life affirmation. So, we looked at this and we've actually done two studies and I think in aggregate we've got surveys or interviews of over 700 bereaved family members. And just what seems obvious is true, which is that it absolutely influenced them in very positive ways, particularly if it's explained, you know, and, and it's, it's given um, some kind of understanding. What we, we did was then we looked at various instruments. Or there's, there's instruments you can use to survey instruments to measure grief processing. And people who had had witnessed this in a positive way, absolutely showed a healthier adaptation through the process of grief. And so it's it's gone from something you see anecdotally to something that's objectively measurable. And I, you know, my own view is that if, you know, if the, those stories are some of the most meaningful. Is how those left behind are influenced and by their loved one dying if they're seeing these things. How do you hope your work changes the way we approach the dying process, particularly in the West? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great qualifier because what's really, really important is there are cultures and peoples who, for whom this is just baked into their belief system. You know, uh, I'm working with a film producer in Australia who's dealing with the indigenous people of South America and Australia. And this is actually part of how they remain connected to their ancestors. And it's just a given. You know, I, I, I hope it increases the conversation. I hope, again, it views dying from a strictly medical paradigm and more of a human event, one that recognizes that the patient has something to say, that they have meaning right up until the very end. I hope it brings the loved one closer to them and that somehow they remain connected and they can process loss differently. I hope, honestly, that it, it gets pulled into a more human realm 
than a sterilized medical one. This has to be more than medical, death has to be more than medical futility and failure. And, you know, I think we're seeing that more and more as particularly baby boomers are facing this issue. They're not viewing medicine in the same, you know, it's a tool in the toolbox, but that's not the end of it. So we see death cafes and death doulas. So I just hope this work enters that conversation and it's more rich and meaningful and reclaimed. Well, you mentioned that you, you discovered that your audience, your primary audience is really the family members who are taking care of dying people and not so much the medicine medical field. But have you seen like, have you gotten a toehold a little bit in the, the world of medicine where there, where you see doctors taking these, this, these visions seriously? Yeah. You know, we, we do see, we do see there, we have some evidence to suggest that the, the light that's been shot on this has put it on the radar at, at least. I think what's most interesting is that the doctor's there's a set of doctors that you're basically preaching to the choir and the ones that recognize this actually experienced it personally rather than clinically. So I think what it does is it's probably, there's some data that suggests that they were, there's a reluctance to acknowledge this. And I think that helps. I think that empowering the nurses and the folks who really do this work at the bedside, who care for patients, I think it's given them a stronger voice. I think there's some evidence for that. Yeah, I, I think so. It's a harder rock to chip away at, but I think maybe we are. Well, let's say someone is listening to this and they've got a loved one who is dying. And I think everyone listening to this eventually will have a loved one who's going to die. And your loved one's having these pre-death dreams and they're talking about them. Like, how do you how do you respond? You know, when they tell you, "Oh, I see my long dead grandmother over there in the corner." What? How do you interact with that? You know, I, I mean, the first rule of anybody who's having that experience is don't fragment it, don't counter it, don't try to redirect them to the present. Uh, you obviously acknowledge and and, inval- and validate. You know, we see this a lot clinically when people try to tell a patient to deny their reality, it's harmful. And then dying that's already lonely becomes more isolating. So encouraging to not only, you need to give it kind of permission to occur and to encourage people. I'll give you a very quick story. You know, oftentimes dying people will revert to their native language. And there was an immigrant from Poland and I come in and the daughter's in the corner of the room looking scared as her mom's recalling in Polish, you know, her childhood and the daughter's alarm thinking she's got brain tumor or it's drugs or whatever, explain that it's, it's normal, et cetera. Come back the next day and she's got a notepad and she's hearing for the first time rich details about her mom's childhood friends, her grandparents, the pets she had. So my point is, is get closer to it, ask, honor, and you might be surprised that you're in there too. And, um, and, you know, it, 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 there's a lot of richness in hearing how somebody is describing the best parts of having lived. Well, Chris, this has been a great conversation. Is there some place people can go to learn more about the book and your work? Sure, sure. There is a website. It's uh, Dr. Dr. Christopher Kerr, K-E-R-R dot org. And at that site, there's some summary of our research findings. I think we have seven or eight manuscripts published, about 1,500 patients. There's also links to patient family videos, which I think is the most important part. There's a link to the TEDx talk. 
also how to see the Netflix special and the PBS show, as well as the book. Well, fantastic. Well, Chris Kerr, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, very much so. Thank you. Great questions. My guest here is Dr. Christopher Kerr. He's the author of the book, Death is But a Dream. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about his work at his website, drchristopherkerr.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash deathdreams, where you can find links to resources where we delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanless.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years about pretty much anything you can think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps out a lot. If you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay. Remind you all to listen to the AOM Podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.